0: Jumped up here a little bit early, so uh, I'm so fired up to preach. I almost broke that pew as I got up here, but it's good to be here tonight. It's good to see everybody. I'm so thankful to be here. Um, anytime Pastor Justin asks me to preach, it's always met with the yes, but I need to find out what God wants me to preach. And so I'm always excited to get up here and to preach to you guys because I get a chance and a blessing to do life with you guys. And I get a chance to see how you guys love each other. And it's encouraging to me because I know that this church is being used to further God's kingdom. Not only are we meeting here and are we encouraging each other and praying for each other here, but we're reaching out to the community and we're blessing this community by the way we live and by the way we worship God. And so um, tonight I'm honored to preach to you guys about desperation. So we're going to take a break on the Holy Spirit sermon series and Pastor Justin will likely be here next week to finish us off and to continue us in that series. But we're going to talk about being desperate. We're going to talk about being desperate for the Holy Spirit and about being desperate for God. And we're going to look to the scriptures in Luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 50. It's 14 verses and there's a lot in there. And my sermon for tonight is entitled, Are You Desperate for God? So that's going to be my Main action point at the end of the sermon is, are you desperate for God? So we're going to get there by looking at three specific things in this scripture. So I see three things that I feel like the Lord illuminated to me as I was spending time with this text and with these 14 verses. And those three things are as follows. Distance, desperation, and adoration. And so I felt like the Lord brought these things to mind as I was spending time with this text. And this scripture is so important to me ever since I um, came into the faith about a decade ago. This scripture is one I continuously go back to. It has a lot of meaning for me because I can see what Jesus is talking about as being applicable to my life, and I know that it's applicable to your life as well. So if you're a note taker, please grab your notepad or whatever it may be and write down these three words because these are gonna be the words that we focus on tonight in this scripture. Distance, desperation, and adoration. So if you can, please grab your Bible and turn to this scripture because you're definitely not gonna be able to read what I just put on the screen. But if you have like 2020 vision, or you just got new spectacles, or whatever it is, you can read this. Good to go. So, uh, but if you can't read it on the screen, use your Bible that you may have brought with you. There's a Bible in your pew, or nowadays we're so high tech, you can pull it up on your Bible app on your amazing Android smartphone or your outdated Apple device. Right? I did that for you, Zach. Um, So uh, we're going to read this entire story first. We're going to spend time with the scripture. There are a lot of different things we could talk about in 14 verses of scripture, but we're going to talk specifically about distance, desperation, and adoration. So we're just going to go right in. I'm going to read it. We're going to pray. We're going to ask for God to awaken us to his presence. I trust that he's already doing that in your hearts as he was doing that in mine as well through the worship. And then I'm going to preach it, so. Let's uh, read this scripture. You can follow along with me. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to another. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly Forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, said Jesus. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them off with her hair. Wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with a rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has been shown much love. But a person who is forgiven little only shows little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then the men at the table said amongst themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we're going to go before the Lord tonight because we're in desperate need of his Holy Spirit to take this word and to apply it in our lives. And so we're going to go before God. God is always with us. Amen. Always with us. It's just sometimes we're not awakened to his presence. And so let's get awakened to his presence. Jesus, we're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that you're always with us, Father God. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit that you've deposited into our lives as Christians, and we just ask that your spirit tonight grab this word and place it into our hearts, and that it would have its way in our life, that this word would transform us, that you would be with us tonight, that your Holy Spirit would breathe on the words that you've given to me, Lord God, that I would honor you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing we're going to talk about is distance, distance. So um, there's so many different things that I see with this Pharisee, things that he's got wrong, things that, he, things that he's got mixed up. And one of the things specifically that I want to talk about is distance. And in two different um, ways specifically, I don't think that this Pharisee understands the distance between himself and God. And I don't think that the Pharisee understands the distance between himself and The Immoral Woman. So we're going to talk about distance for a second. But before we get to that, I want to just talk to you in general about the whole concept of distance. And so I'm going to need a little little bit of participation. So what is the furthest, think in your mind, what is the furthest distance that I've ever traveled? you don't need to answer this, but think. What is the furthest I've ever traveled to get to a particular destination? So now I'm going to ask for a show of hands here. Whoever has been on an airplane. Okay, keep your hands up. Who here has ever been on a plane for more than four hours? Keep your hands up. Put them down if you have not been. Who here has ever been on a plane longer than six hours? Keep your hands up if you have. Who here has been on a plane longer than nine hours, 12, 16, a day, 24 hours? So 16 hours. You've you been on a plane for a day, bro? How, how many hours is that? You've been on a plane for a whole day. That's crazy. So I mean, you're going to need some Snickers and some Twix for that. So I'm going to give you uh, some candy here. Um, don't give it to your newborn, and definitely don't give it to your, um, your, your uh, one-and-a-half-year-old or your one-year-old because she will be hopped up. But how did you feel after being on a plane ride for that long? Tired. I was preaching this to my wife two nights ago, and she was like, I felt disgusted after I've been on a plane that long. Disgusting. Disgusted, disgusting, probably a little bit of both, maybe not, I don't know, okay. Okay, my my second thing in terms of distance is, I know we've got some active people in here, we've got some physically fit people in here, who here has ever at one time or now considers themselves a runner? Like one person, (laughs) like three people run. Has anybody ever ran a marathon in here tonight? Dang, you ran a marathon? Joel has never ran a marathon. He has sort of ran a marathon. Okay, I am about to say. Kids, we, they probably think like a half a mile is a marathon. But um, okay, cool. So, I mean, has, this just really backfired on me because there's normally a lot of people who have ran marathons. But Laura ran half a marathon. Okay. So who here has ran more than 10 miles? Okay. You used to do triathlons? So how many miles is that? Straight. Laura, how many miles have you ran before straight? You ran a half marathon? 13? Anyone ran more than 13 miles? All right, Laura doesn't even know what she's talking about or that she's won this, but she's won this. You got some candy. How did you feel after running a half marathon? Sore, tired. Listen, 26 miles in a marathon, 13 miles in a half marathon. I, don't, I can barely go like 13 minutes without going to the bathroom, let alone running 13 miles. And so um, the whole point is these long distances take their toll on us. Whether it's plane, train, automobile, whatever it is, going the distance is something that takes its toll on us. And we can think about these things and we can recall how we felt traveling these distances on airplanes, on half marathons. I personally um, ran three miles on Thanksgiving. And uh, during that time, I'll let you know I was ready to quit and give up. And after three miles, I felt like I wanted to just give up. I understand distance. I understand what it takes because of the toll that it on my body. So let me tell you a real quick story about when I was a kid. So uh, when I was 13 or 14 years old, uh, my family went on a vacation, and I was blessed to have an aunt and uncle who took me every year with their three kids down to Florida from Pennsylvania. Like, really long road trip, and we would get in this two-door Lincoln, and I don't even know if it was a Lincoln, but it was, like, really huge, and it had two doors, and there was four kids and two adults. And this was when, like, you could be a kid and sit in the middle of, like, the passenger, uh, you know, and the driver, which is probably not safe, but I remember being crammed in a car driving forever, but one year we went to Ocean City, Maryland as a family, and it wasn't near as long as going to Florida, but I remember that trip like it was yesterday, and something happened there that to, up until the point of me sermon prepping, I could remember of being comical and hilarious, but I couldn't remember if what I remembered was true. So do you remember those road signs, and hopefully you know these road signs because you all of you have your license for the most part, but those signs along the side of the road that tell you where you're going and how many miles it takes to get there. Like a sign like this. If you're on 58 East and you're driving and you see this sign, you know, look, I know how long it's going to take me to get to Franklin, to Norfolk, and to Virginia Beach because of the miles that are indicated next to the destination, correct? So I'm a kid. I'm 13, 14 years old. And I have a limited view of geography like right now. But when I was 13 or 14, it was a lot worse. But when I was 13 and 14, I remember being in Ocean City, Maryland. And as I was there, I remember seeing this sign just like this. And this sign said Sacramento, California, 3,073 miles. In Ocean City, Maryland, there is a sign that says how many miles it takes you to get all the way across the entire United States. Nobody is laughing but Joel. This was the funniest thing to me. I am. You're like me. Joel was me when I was 13. And so this was the funniest thing to me. I'm like, what in the world? Like, this can't even be real. I'm like that cartoon character who's like, you know, did I see that right? You know, like, um. Wiping off my glasses. And so I thought that this was the funniest thing ever. And so as I was sermon prepping and thinking about distance, I got to searching this and thinking, was this real? And this is an actual picture of that sign. And so it was uh, something that was done because... Highway 50 starts in Maryland and it goes all the way to California. And so someone on the Maryland State Highway Administration thought it would be comical to say, let's just place a mile marker for the furthest distance from here. Letting people know if you want, you can drive like 19 days to get to California. And so it was so comical that someone who worked for the California side of administration just happened to be in Ocean City, and they thought, that's really funny. So you know what we should do in California? We should put a sign up that says how long it takes to get to Ocean City, Maryland. So, so now to me, like 20 years later, this is even funnier because not only did I find out that this is a real thing, but that they did the same exact thing. Like there's a kid on the West Coast that's laughing about the same thing than seeing a sign in Maryland. And so this is funny to me because, look, we're used to seeing these signs with travelable distances, distances that we can go. But 3,073 miles to a 13-year-old doesn't even seem realistic. This is crazy. There's definitely no need for either one of these signs. Definitely no need. And. This just got me to thinking about distance and thinking about Simon the Pharisee. And so as I'm breaking down this first point, I want to talk with you guys about Simon and how I don't think that he understood distance correctly. Like I said, there's two different ways that I don't think he understood distance. The distance between him and Jesus and the distance between him and the immoral woman. So we're going to start off and we're going to talk about Simon's perception of the immoral woman. Simon's immediate thought after this immoral woman crashes the party and starts kneeling at Jesus' feet, crying, washing, and kissing his feet, and pouring out expensive perfume on Jesus' feet is this. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Simon's response and his heart and mind are shared with us here in the scripture, and immediately it's judgment for the woman and it's judgment toward Jesus. I like to think um, sometimes... When I'm reading the scripture, I, like, translate it myself. I think Simon in his mind is like, man, what is this dude? Does this dude even know who this woman is? Like, he surely wouldn't let her touch him. She's a sinner. And so Simon's response was fueled by his self-righteousness and him thinking of himself not as a sinner and thinking of her as something that he was not. What he was essentially doing is he was placing distance where God didn't design distance to be placed. And so he, too, was in the exact same position, but he failed to see his need for, sa- for a Savior. He failed to see his need for grace. And it's interesting because it says that this was in Simon's head. These were his thoughts. And so what we see is our precious Lord Jesus, he uses this as a teachable moment in his life. And he's like, hey, uh, he's going to answer this guy's thoughts. It's interesting this is an entire sermon for an entire different time, but let's not glance over this. Jesus knows your thoughts. And there isn't one thought that goes through your mind that Jesus isn't completely and fully aware of and aware of and able to address you on and desiring to address you on. That's another sermon for another day. But know this, he can address your thoughts. And that's exactly what he did here. Simon thinks it and Jesus is like, "Um, hey, man, we're going, we're going to need to talk. That's, that's how I think Jesus maybe said it. So he goes on to tell Simon the story of the parable of um, two debtors. He's like, look, hey, this guy gives 500 pieces of silver to one person, 50 to another. Neither can pay it back, so the man kindly forgives. Simon, who, who loves the woman more? So it's interesting here, Simon goes, I suppose the one who had the larger debt canceled. And in, this, in, um, in his response here, we see Simon saying, I suppose and I wanted to know like, I wonder how many other different Bible translations have him saying that, because Jesus says, "Who do you suppose loved them more?" And he's like, "Well, I suppose." A couple different translations: the New Living Translation, the King James, the ESV, the NIV and the message versions, the different translations of Scripture, all of these have him saying, "I suppose. And it got me to thinking, like, when do I say, I suppose? Typically when I don't want to admit what I have to say is right. Like when my wife is like, hey, uh, you think these socks belong on the floor or they belong in the dresser? And I'm like, I suppose they belong in the dresser. Rather reluctantly, anybody been there before? So it's interesting um, that he says that because that's what we say as well and he's often say, he's saying it almost as if hey I don't even really want to admit this but you know what I'm going to I'm going to admit it see because Simon doesn't understand distance between him and God either I think it's clear from this scripture that we're studying tonight that Simon doesn't believe that Jesus can offer forgiveness I don't think that Simon sees that and we see this as we get to later on in the scripture where it says the men that are present Say, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? You see, Simon the Pharisee is used to being defined by his behaviors. So he's not trying to be defined by a Savior. He's defined by his behaviors. Keeping rules and keeping laws. This is what's important to a Pharisee. Doing what he thinks is right is how he thinks he travels the distance to get to God. Yeah, he sees a distance between himself and God, but he thinks that he can travel that distance by the way he behaves, by the way he acts, by the good deeds that he does. This Pharisee is used to putting his faith in his own righteousness. Like when he looks at street signs on his journey through life, on his path to get to God, he sees a mile marker next to the sign. 3,073 miles likely is not comical to him because he sees it as achievable by his good deeds. Like he could travel that by the way that he acts. This Pharisee was me as a kid in Maryland and he sees that sign and God's in some distant, faraway place. Like he thinks that he can go there. He thinks that he can make it to God by the way that he behaves, by the way that he acts. He doesn't see this as astronomical. He thinks he can travel this path by himself. But that, my friends, is a distorted view of distance in our relationship with God. In this context, you see, This guy has yet to have a revelation that the distance is only travelable by Jesus. There is a distance between you and God. There's a distance between us and God because of our sin and our rebellion. And there's one way you can get there, and it's not by effort. So there's not a number next to that sign. It's Jesus. Jesus is the path. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And not only did Jesus travel the distance He's the way that we go and are following him. So Simon failed to see distance the correct way, and I think we do at times as well. This is, I kind of think, how Simon saw the distance. God is the destination, but he doesn't see Jesus as the way. He sees a mile marker. This is how we need to see our relationship with God. The only way you get there is by the grace of God expressed to us through Jesus Christ. And because he offered us grace and forgiveness, we are to follow the one who traveled the distance. But look, Simon wasn't signing up for this journey. Simon wasn't ready to lay down his life and follow Jesus. As we see in scripture, he missed the distance. Church, let us not be many Simons and miss the distance as well. To God, sin is sin. And while one person may have fewer sins, like The Pharisee, he probably doesn't even really think he has sinned, but he sees this woman as having many sins. We're all in need of the same grace of God to travel that distance. One sin separates you from a holy and just God the same way a million sins do. Both need the grace of God. So so let me ask you this question Do you understand distance properly as we're talking about it tonight? Are you in awe of the forgiveness that God has given you, like the immoral woman was? Or are you in disgust at the forgiveness that God has given others? Church, don't be a Simon. You can't earn God's favor. It's given to you. You can't earn his grace. Don't get caught up in the judgmental comparison trap because this comparison often leads to us comparing sins. And that road is not paved with humility. It's paved with pride. The distance between us, each other, me and you, it's non-existent. Non-existent. The distance between us and God, it's astronomical. There's no possible way that we can travel that distance. And once we understand that, we understand that there's nothing we could ever do, that's when we get to our desperation point, which is our main theme for the night. As we see here in this text, the distance brought the immoral woman to her desperation point. Simon was kept from his desperation point because he didn't understand distance and he failed to see himself as a sinner. But this immoral woman surely, surely understood her distance between her and Jesus. The beginning of this text shows the fruit of someone who's desperate for God. The scripture says that she heard Jesus was there, so she acts in faith. She grabs her most expensive possession. She crashes a party. Look, how many of you know she likely wasn't invited to this party? She didn't think twice, though. She didn't think, "Um, how am I going to be viewed? How am I going to be judged? I'm sure that she knew how she was going to be judged and the thoughts that likely would have went through Simon's mind. But she didn't stop and allow that to stop her from being at the feet of Jesus. All she cared about was being at the feet of Christ. That's what being desperate does. It causes you to do things that other people might consider strange, that some people might consider, oh, that's a little over the top. Being desperate. Because she knew what she was forgiven of. That's the key. She knew what she did was wrong. She knew, she knew the way she was living was foul. And, and, and oh, by the way, uh, let's not jump to conclusions about what her sin may have been. Because the sin of pride is just as sinful as the sin of promiscuity. Scripture doesn't say that this woman was promiscuous. Um, side note, I did a lot of um, looking at this scripture and breaking down this scripture. and Some people would say um, that this was Mary Magdalene and this, that, and the third. and um, Then they throw improper judgments and opinions about Mary Magdalene's character and about this woman. and Then they say, well, this woman, she must have been a prostitute. Look, there's nothing in the scripture that says that this woman was a prostitute. She's just an immoral woman. And I think it's interesting, A, that it doesn't say what her name is. She was a child of God. She came to Jesus. She brought her life to Jesus. She brought everything to Jesus. But it also doesn't say what her sin was. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit of God doesn't want us to get into the comparison trap of comparing sins. Amen? You think God wants us tallying up our sins like this is worse than another? None of that is. The scripture says that our most righteous acts are filthy Is rags, and I don't think the Holy Spirit wants us to be wondering what she did or what she didn't do. And then we start to compare ourselves, and we're not as bad as her here. We're not as bad as her there. Sin is sin. Sin is sin. So we see here the parable of the two debtors, which is smack dab in the middle of this passage. This is used to show us that when people come to a realization of how much they've been forgiven, their love for the Lord is proportionate with the debt that they've been forgiven of. She knows what she's been forgiven of, and it's so much. It was so heavy. It was so meaningful to her that the one who has the power to forgive sin would do so freely and do so kindly. Know this. Just like the man who loaned money in this parable kindly forgave, both of the people who owed debts know that the Lord Jesus kindly forgives you your debts as well. Like the most egregious thing you could possibly think of that you may have done. God kindly forgives it. So what we see here in the immoral woman is really her understanding a scripture that has yet to be written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Where the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that the Lord's kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? God's kindness draws us to repentance. The Lord isn't some grumpy father begrudgingly forgiving you of your sins. You don't come to him, ask him for forgiveness, and he's all like, yeah, whatever. Get out of my face. I forgive you now. Go ahead and be gone. That's not God. God kindly forgives us of our sins. So um, let me get a show of hands if you know who this guy is. Okay, good to go. We all have dated ourselves here. Who is that? That is my friend Archie Bunker. And so um, I'm probably going to date myself a bit here, but I know some of you guys understand who he is. Some of you guys don't. So let me explain. Archie Bunker was in the sitcom in the 70s and the 80s. It was called All in the Family. And let me just say this. This guy was grumpy. He was the head of the Bunker family. And his temper would fly off the handle at a moment's notice without considering those around him. And one thing we can say for certain is this dude is definitely not characterized by the word kind. This guy, Archie Bunker, is the polar opposite of kind. Those of you who know Archie Bunker, would you not agree that? Okay. This fictional character would rule his family and let his controversial comments fly from his lips from his infamous chair. Remember his chair that he agitatedly sat on in his living room? But if you aren't familiar with Archie, just know this, two things. He's grumpy and he's known for having a temper. He just was not kind. Look, God the Father is nothing like Archie Bunker. Nothing. God isn't cruel. God isn't inconsiderate toward others. God rules from the throne in heaven much better than Archie ruled from the chair in his living room. We must see the Lord's kindness as driving his forgiveness to us. That's what would draw out your worship when you get to your moment of desperation. God's kindness. Because we deserve wrath. We deserve anger. We deserve to be separate from God for our sin and our rebellion. But God kindly forgives us. You know why he kindly forgives you? Because he loves you. Because he cares for you. Because he chose you to shower his grace on, even though you don't deserve it. You see, the immoral woman remembered what she was trapped in, and because of her thankfulness and her gratitude and kindness for the Lord expressed through Jesus Christ, she brought everything she had to the feet of Jesus. Her expensive perfume meant nothing to her anymore, because what meant everything to her has now changed. And I think that's for us as well. Once Jesus means everything to you, you will bring everything to him. Not only did she bring this sacrifice of her possessions to Jesus, but she brought her emotions to him as well. She brought her tears and each one of them was cried out of her thankfulness for forgiving the debt she knew she couldn't pay. These tears of gratitude, of thankfulness were offered at his feet and she used them to serve him. She used her emotions to serve Jesus, wiping his feet with all that she had and that were her tears. I don't see this woman looking around to grab a rag to wipe his feet. She just used what she had, and that was her hair. Sounds desperate, huh? She doesn't care what people think. She's not even stopping to consider how to wipe his feet. Like I said, she's just doing it. And this is where the scripture really touches me. This is exactly where I found myself, and I find myself is because. The desperation point that I got to when I came into a relationship with Christ is something I try to remember daily. Because that's what draws out my worship and draws out my adoration. Church, I remember vividly what my many sins were. I remember the darkness that I was pulled out of. I remember those nights I ran around the town acting foolish, trying to get others to follow in my paths to fulfill my own selfish desires. I remember the darkness that I was pulled out of, and not only do I remember that, but I remember, I, I know, and I remember, and I remind myself how I've been forgiven of all of it. Forgiven. Kindly forgiven of all of it. And not only do I remember that, oh, guess what? I'm still remembering and laying down the things that God wants to work in me now, because I got pride issues. I got selfish issues. I have self-righteous issues at times, and God's still forgiving me. I am not In any less need of Jesus' grace now than I was then. Sure, some of my sins might be a little more internal and a lot less external. And if you put them on a, if you were comparing sins, you might think, oh, those were a lot worse. But to God, it's not. It's in a sin. I won't think twice about giving Jesus worship. Worship, and let's not think worship as just singing In when we're here during worship. Once I started to, like, truly, like, man, like, faith clicked to me, and I started, like, giving Jesus everything. As he, like, redefined what worship meant to me. Yes, this is worship. Right now, me preaching, worship. Us singing, worship. You and your fellowship with people, it's how you worship God. You and how you work your job to the glory of God, worship. How you live your life is worship. How you live your life is expressed in different ways. It's how you work, it's how you talk, it's how you sing, it's your heart's posture, all of that. How are you going to worship him? So I won't think twice about the praise I'll give my Jesus. I won't think twice about, I just, my vehicle messed up not too long ago, and I'm praying, God, I do not want to take this car to try to get it fixed again. So I looked it up. I tried to figure out what it was. I got my car fixed. A bunch of you in here helped me, which was super awesome. And I figured it out, and I did it all by myself, and then I took my car to the gas station, and I'm, like, at this point where I'm trying to see if, like, my gas pump and my car is fixed now because I did all the work and the research, and I'm doing it, and I'm filling it up, and it's, It worked. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus, at like the 7-Eleven. I'm not going to think twice about the praise I give God. Neither should you. Because I know, I know the much that I've been forgiven of. So let me ask you this question, church. What are your many sins that you've been forgiven of? You've got them. And let me suggest this, that if you think they're not many, they're likely a lot more than you probably think. Likely a lot more. They they might be a little bit more internal now than maybe they were before and how external they would have been before. But you're in the same need of God's grace now as you were then. And don't ever forget that. The gospel that saves you is the gospel that's sustaining you. So your moment of desperation, it may not have looked like mine. I'm not trying to tell you to be like me. It might not have looked like this immoral woman's. But if you've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've only come to it one way, and that's at a moment of desperation. There's no other way than being desperate for God. What does it look like in your life? Like I said, it may look different than mine. It may look different than any moral woman's. But let me talk to you guys about this. Is, is I feel like there are likely some people here tonight who are struggling and thinking, man, like desperate for God. Um, you might be thinking, I don't remember the last time I felt desperate for God. Yeah, maybe I'm desperate, excuse me, for God to show up for me in these areas in my life. Like, maybe you're desperate for his presence, as in gifts, but you're not desperate for his presence, as in who he is, like you should be. And you're wondering, well, why is that? Maybe you've just forgotten of the reality of how sinful you are and how much you've been forgiven of. Don't underestimate your own sinfulness. And I don't say this in a way to get you paralyzed because we should never be paralyzed when we come to the fact of, that we're imperfect. When we come to the point we realize and we fail, it should draw us closer in our worship. Look, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you should realize how sinful you are. You don't need his grace any less now than you did back then. The gospel that saved you when you had a U-Haul's worth of sin, like a whole bunch of sin, is the gospel that sustains you when you have a smart car full of sin. Smart cars a little car. U-Haul is really big, in case you don't know that. I realize I should probably break that down. Maybe someone doesn't know that. But smart cars are really small. And so this, when you understand, no matter what it is, that you've been forgiven of, how desperate you are from God, that's... When your adoration comes. That's when your adoration comes. Your desperation will fuel your adoration. So let's define this word real quick. When you look and do a quick Google search for the word desperation, you see a couple different things. You see it say deep love and respect or worship. So when you love someone, it's often said that you adore them. And in the context of our relationship with God, we adore him. We have deep love for him, respect, and we worship him. So let's get back to this text. This is exactly what we see with the immoral woman. She heard Jesus was at the Pharisees' home. She heard it. She acts in faith and crashes the party. She sees the one who kindly forgives, our Lord Jesus, and she gets on her knees in adoration. This deep love, respect, and worship she has for Jesus is shown. This way that she feels toward Christ is shown in how she acts toward him. So you know the story. We've talked about it. She's crying at his feet. She's pouring her possessions, this expensive perfume on his feet. Her desperation has fueled her adoration. She starts giving him all she has. And one of the things that I want to close on tonight that is one of the most adoration, um, one of the, the biggest moments her adoration is put on display to me is that she keeps kissing Jesus' feet. you got to really love somebody to kiss their feet. Whoo. Like I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm willing to bet some of you all on here didn't kiss a foot or two in your lifetime. And um, let me just say this. Look, feet are nasty. Feet are absolutely slow clap. Feet are absolutely disgusting. And look, it's a running joke in my family. Dude, I got some nasty feet. Nasty feet. They're hobbit-like, if you know what the hobbit is. And I'm sure I'm not alone. Some of you guys chuckling or some of you guys trying to let this moment pass without being chuckled on. You don't have perfectly pedicured feet. Like feet that are constantly kissed or feet of babies. Because they haven't been walking around on them jokers for like two to seven uh, decades. They're clean, cute. Those are the feet that get kissed, right? But me, I'm a grown man, and I've been walking on these dogs for almost four decades. Look, they are nasty. I don't think about cutting my toenails till my socks start getting holes in them. Like, none of that stuff. And when I'm in bed with my wife and my foot slightly swipes next to her, she's like, get those talons away from me, those weapons. She don't like it. I got some nasty feet. So in the spirit of vulnerability here, I'm going to take my, no, I'm not going to take it. But I want you to see. So I was about 35 years old, a little older than Jesus was in this scripture. And this is what my feet look like. <laughs> okay, this is, this is awesome. So there's a funny story behind this picture here. So I was just posting a picture with me and my daughter on social media. And leave it to my wife to call out the ugliness of my feet. Leave it to my Wonderful brother-in-law, Nate. Hi, Nate. How you doing? I hope you feel better. I'm praying for you, bro. But uh, leave it to Nate and my wife to start a social media onslaught roasting of my feet. And everyone's like, those are my ugly feet. What would you do to that picture? Is it Photoshopped? Like, look at this right here. It really looks Photoshopped. It really looks like the Walking Dead, like, foot right here. That's like my real foot. It's creepy. My wife and Amanda were right and so was David Godwin and so was Pastor Fred. So was everybody else who laughed on that. So are all of you. But back in Jesus' day, his feet weren't covered up. He didn't have nice converse and chucks like I got on. He wasn't rocking Adidas slide, Nike slide sandals or Birkenstocks. He wasn't rocking that. He had like leather sandals with grass maybe, maybe rope holding them together. And his feet were exposed to the elements. He didn't have running shoes. His feet were exposed to the elements. And they walked everywhere. Do you think my feet are ugly? (laughs) Look, let me say this. I don't have any biblical text to say that Jesus' feet look like this. But let's just say Jesus' feet weathered the elements a lot more than mine did. So people in that day, they probably didn't have perfectly pedicured feet, right? His feet likely were not silky smooth. But that didn't stop this woman. That didn't stop her. She gets on her feet and she's kissing him over and over and over. Like not just one peck. Like she's continuously kissing him. Look, you probably only have continuously kissed your little baby's feet. or Maybe your spouse's and if you're married you can kiss feet. But um, your spouse's on all of that stuff because you're showing your adoration. But this woman is on her feet. With some feet that have been used for many, many years that are not sanitary. This is not sanitary stuff. If you're a germaphobe, you're probably freaked out right now. There wasn't any Purell. Simon didn't offer her anything to wash, offered Jesus anything to wash his feet. So these feet were not sanitary. So here she is at his feet, washing his feet, kissing his feet, kept kissing him, kissing his feet. You know why? Because she knows how much he's been forgiven. That seems pretty desperate, right? Look, I know there are people who've judged me for the way that I express my faith, for the way that I worship Christ, for the way that I give him adoration. Maybe Christians, maybe non-Christians, whatever, whoever. I'm aware of it. I don't really care. Because I'm not going to let the thoughts and opinions of others dictate the worship I'm going to give my Jesus. And so you shouldn't either. None of us should. We see this here. She's at the feet of Jesus because she understands the distance between her and God. She can't travel it. So that created a desperation once she understood the distance. And then that desperation drew out adoration. I'm going to call the worship team up right now. This is where we need to find ourselves at the feet of Jesus constantly. Sure, it's going to look different because you don't have physical feet to Cuddle up next to, but you need to get at the feet of Jesus, and there you will hear these two things. Your sins are forgiven, your sins forgiven. He knows them all. He knows all of them. You're forgiven. Because he kindly forgives you. And then, and then he tells her, you your, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Being at the feet of Jesus and expressing your adoration happens because you've placed your faith in him. And you may be here tonight and you may be in a relationship with Christ, as I'm sure most of us are. But you may be here and you're not in a relationship with Christ. We haven't felt that feeling of desperation. But know this. If you're at that point where you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, know now is the day, now is the time. Come lay everything down at his feet. And for those of you who are in a relationship with Christ and you've just lost that feeling of desperation, you remember times where you clung to your Bible like it was the only book that was ever written. Maybe you've slept with your Bible. Don't judge me. I've done it. I've slept. I've went to bed with the Bible so close to me that it was like a person next to me. And guess what? The Word of God is Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time at His feet. So what does that look like for us, though? Being at the feet of Jesus, it means being vulnerable being vulnerable enough that you don't care what anybody thinks God didn't think twice about loving you so don't think twice about loving him so during this song oh Lord you're beautiful raise your hands to Jesus worship Jesus sing to Jesus whatever that looks like for you the altar's open we got people back there to pray for you we got people out here that'll cry with you we love you Jesus loves you He wants you at his feet vulnerable, and not just here right now, but next Tuesday when you're out at work, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday on your way to church, Sunday morning when you're watching football, whatever it is, Jesus just wants you to love on him. He wants your adoration. And that's the beauty of Christmas. We were talking about distance. That's the beauty of Christmas, that Jesus traveled the distance you could never travel. He traveled it for you. That's beautiful. He knows your sin. He knows you can't pay for it. Whether it's something deeply internal or very much external, when everyone can see it, God loves you the same. He loves all of us the same. He's not judging us. He's asking us, come to me. I got grace for that. I got grace for that. He's accepting you where you're at. Yes, he wants to change you. There's a difference between we were at a, Christmas party last night, and Pastor Fred encouraged us. He said, there's a difference between acceptance and approval. God accepts you where you're at. He accepts all of us. He doesn't approve of what we've done, but He accepts us where we're at. And at the feet of Jesus is where change comes. At the feet of Christ, understanding that He was perfect. He was sinless. He lived a perfect life, and He died a sinner's death on the cross because that was something that you couldn't do. You couldn't travel that distance, and so Jesus did it for you, and then He rose from the dead. You just got to put your faith in that. You got to remember that. I'm talking to a bunch of people that understand that. You need to just remember that. Look, every time I preach and every time I hear Pastor Justin preach, you could call preachers reminders because all we're doing is reminding you of what this Bible says. We're just reminding you. We're reminding you of the gospel. We're reminding you of your need for Christ. And so this is the one thing you need to ask yourself as we go into worship. Our sermon title for this evening is, Are You Desperate for God? Are you? Are you desperate for God? With people in the back who would love to pray with you, Tyler and Emily, they would love to pray with you, pray for you, hear you. But ask God, am I desperate for you? How about lost that feeling of desperation? And if so, why? The Holy Spirit, change me. So as we go into worship, think about that. Do business with God. And know this, that God's not sitting in heaven like Archie Bunker agitatedly sat on his chair in his living room. God is sitting in the throne of heaven, kindly waiting to forgive you of your sins.
1: You guys can stand. Oh, Jesus, remind us of our first encounter with you, God us of our desperation for you father because we know we can do it Bound to me, sing, I wanna and I wanna take your word and shine it all around. First, I'll me just to live alone, and when I'm doing well, help me to never see. want to take your word and shine it all around. First, help me just
0: Never seek a crown. That's where we lose our desperation is because we start to do well and we start to forget, how did we get well? How did we get better? We start Taking that crown that was placed at Jesus' feet and start putting it back on our heads, thinking that we did that, thinking that we traveled the distance. But no, it was the Holy Spirit that traveled the distance. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered that change within you. And it's the Holy Spirit that you still need to lean on. And so what we're doing well, help us to never seek a crown. I'm going to leave you with the last verse from this text because... It's the perfect way to end the sermon. It's the perfect way that we see that this scripture is ended here. It's Jesus, our kind, loving, forgiving Savior. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He tells the immoral woman, she knew all the crazy sins she had. And he tells her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So that's my encouragement to you guys. God loves you guys travel that's where your desperation should come from and that's how your adoration is fueled from your desperation for God and the grace that you've been given if you're in here right now I don't remember the desperation if that's you saying I don't